One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday the 28th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The European Union will start preparations for dealing with a collapse in the Brexit talks in November. Leaders are scheduled to attend a council summit on the 17th and 18th of November. The Irish government says, however, that the October deadline has not changed and it expects a deal which will protect the Good Friday Agreement and avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. Uh, An EU diplomat is quoted uh, today as saying that uh, Europe is giving itself until November to prefer for working on a no deal in an open and official manner. Many of the concerns about the UK crashing out of Europe have been looked at, but the resolution to some of the problems caused are as yet unknown. This week, the leader of the Green Party asked the Minister for European Affairs how a no deal would impact on the single energy market. Helen McEntee didn't appear to know the answer, saying the EU is trying to work with the UK on finding a solution. And the Minister is in the studio with us now. Good morning to you and thanks for coming in to us this morning. Perhaps the answer lies to some degree in a contingency plan that the UK has drawn up and has been seen by the BBC and talks about the lights going out in the north and barges moored off the coast of Northern Ireland with generators on them to provide people up there with electricity. Well, I suppose you you paint a, a stark picture. I mean, we do know and we have known for some time that there are a lot of very serious implications um, ranging from the all-island electricity market to um, the land bridge, which many of our hauliers and many business use to go through the UK to get to Ireland, uh, environmental issues, which are extremely complex north and south, given the fact that we have some lakes that cross both borders and how do you manage that? So, I mean, these are all areas that have been highlighted from the very beginning. There are areas that we have highlighted in our discussions from day one mm. uh, that many politicians, as you've said, um, Deputy Ryan raised it last week and saying, what about mm. the all-island electricity market? And I suppose these are issues that have been discussed. A lot of them but are But is that possible? That the only way to get electricity, electricity to people in Northern Ireland is to bring in generators? Well, there are a number of contingency plans that are being looked at, I suppose. And but that, that is possible. That, is, that, 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 that the EU is doing. Well, I mean, we, we don't know what the possible challenges might be until we know what the possible outcome will be. Um, but what we're trying to do is make sure that things like the All-Island Electricity it, it, Market aren't impacted. And they are very, that is very much connected to 
the backstop to the Irish protocol mm. that we've been talking about the whole time. So where okay. there are connections uh, north I know you say we're going to see a backstop in place, but hypothetically, if you like, if that wasn't the case, uh, does that mean that it would be impossible for Nor- Northern Ireland to have electricity so they could turn on lights and plug in machines and so on uh, because of EU regulations, uh, because uh, they'd be in a, a different jurisdiction? So for us, it's absolutely impossible to imagine that we won't have a backstop. I and when we talk, yes. and, and, yeah. and we've yeah. talked about this, yeah. and, and I know I, I sound like a broken record yeah. maybe in saying this, but without the backstop, you have, as we know, a series of issues that would be impacted and this is one of them. So the backstop is not just mm. about the peace process. It's about areas of cooperation north and south and the All-Ireland Electricity Market is probably one of the most significant of those. We have tourism, we have health, mm. we have animal welfare, we have all of these things. But the All-Ireland Electricity Market is intrinsically linked to the Irish Protocol and the backstop. So the fact that we have committed, the fact that the UK have committed, the EU have committed and the fact that that in itself is linked to the peace process of which we are all co-guarantors. For us, it's just not an option that that would happen, that of that course. would be the case. No, nobody so would want it, but it no. is possible, isn't it? Well, for us, it's not an option. They're not having a backstop and not mm. going into the new year without okay. a, a confirmation from the okay. UK that we are going to deal with all of these issues. Okay, but in that hypothetical so scenario, because I think that's the only way you're going to address it if we call it a hypothetical scenario, in that hypothetical scenario where there isn't a backstop, it is possible that you'd have to bring in generators to provide people in Northern Ireland with electricity. So again, I suppose this comes back to contingency planning for a no deal and suggesting that there would be a kind of a border because that's what you're talking about. Mm. That's not something we're planning for. So I, I genuinely can't tell you what other people are saying, what's being suggested, because we are not planning for that as far as we are concerned. Um, and, you know, where some people are criticising, saying, how can you? But personally, I think this is the only way that we can actually deal with this. There cannot be return to a border because that is one of the many challenges mm. that we would have not least all of the other that but I've just mentioned. And what, I suppose what I'm asking you to do is to tell people what it would mean uh, if it became a reality if that unthinkable situation became life. I, I can't tell people what it means because we're not planning for that so if the UK are doing their own planning uh, even though they've told us that there will be no hard border on the island of Ireland you know, mm. I, I, I would worry if that is the case because they have given commitments not just this summer, but last March, last December. And in every conversation that we have, they are giving a commitment that there will be no hard border. And so if they're planning in the background for that to happen, then I, I, that would be worrying to me. But they have consistently given that commitment and the EU have consistently given that commitment. And what I responded to, to Deputy Ryan um, I suppose it's, it's not that I don't know, but uh, well, I suppose mm. I don't know the detail. But what I do know is that the Commission has been working with the UK, has been working with mm. Ireland to address that issue. And it's very much a part of the Irish protocol, mm. but also part of the future relationship well, uh, moving I, I, forward. I didn't mean so. to be facetious and sound as though you weren't on top of your brief. No, uh, no, you no. The, 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 the point is you don't know because nobody knows. Well, we don't know the outcome. So we're we're talking here and I'm talking to you. Probably, as I said, mm. people are probably 
blue in the face listening to me because we're, we're talking without knowing what the possible outcome will be. So we are planning east-west. We put into motion last week the cabinet, which, ha- which happened um, preparation for 450-plus custom officials to be hired. Uh, that has started immediately. Um, we're looking at all the possible challenges east-west, even in the best result, the best mm. outcome, the best future relationship. But in terms of north-south, it's just not an option. Um, again, as, as I said to you last week, I travelled to the north and I met with groups ranging from you know peace projects to interreg projects which focus on the development of technology everything from electricity to climate uh, change and renewables to health um, devices that can you know save people's lives and all of this work is going on because there's cross-border support because there isn't that barrier there so it, it's just for us it's not an option it okay. can't happen. Uh, would you blame a headline writer for saying the minister won't rule this out I'm absolutely ruling it out. It, it just can't be an option for us. Um, that is the position we have taken and, and it's not to be stubborn, but it's just not in meeting the people that we've met, talked to the people mm. that we've talked to. It's not a possibility. But if the British government thinks it's a, a, a possibility, as the BBC appears to be reporting, uh, well, then surely it is a possibility. Well, I would remind maybe our conversation last week where a, a very reliable source from Bloomberg said that the issue of co- uh, corporation tax was being brought up mm. as uh, something that we had to negotiate in terms of getting a good deal in Brexit. And that is absolutely not the case. So while I appreciate and I talk to uh, reporters and, and journalists in the, the UK or, or engage with their media as well, and I, I absolutely believe they're doing a good job, but I wouldn't believe everything um, that is being put forward. And, and I don't know what uh, all of the contingency plans that mm. the UK are making. They have put out, obviously, well, the worst some case s- scenarios. And we know that we've seen so, the Some papers. of us are cynics uh, and some of us believe that in time uh, there'll be a reward for Europe, uh, something in return for the support that it has given to Ireland, that there'll be a change to our corporation tax rate or that there'll be a change to our defence policies, as we've discussed many times. Again, in terms of defence, um, we have joined PESCO, which is a permanent uh, corporation structure looking at security, defence. Mm. Um, and the only reason that we joined is that we were adamant our neutrality could not be impacted. So, I mean, we have joined with very specific um, details attached to our own application and to our own membership. And, and that can't change. I mean, we are now part of that unit which if anybody wants to join it's up to us to look at that to look at the structure so I mean that's not the case it's never been addressed as the case it's never been asked of us in terms of corporation tax we have a number of uh, other member states that are exactly in the same position as us so but I think coming back to the overall agreement I mean there is a lot of discussion now as though negotiations are over as though we've lost the backstop as though mm. we're now moving towards a hard Brexit Well, and negotiations aren't over yeah. that's what I would say we are running short on time but that time. hinges on a, a general election or a, a people's vote in the United Kingdom doesn't it? Uh, no so we, we still have time we still have an October summit now we're obviously just under three weeks away from that we have the Conservative conference next week which I won't get into because we, I suppose that's their own conference and we don't know what will happen there but what we were told by Theresa May is that they have their own proposals for the backstop so we have to take them at their word we have to uh, allow them to give those 
recommendations, those papers, whatever it is that they have to the task force and we have to be able to make further progress. I do believe that we were making progress up until last week again. I do believe that Michel Barnier was making progress with the UK team in terms of looking at the complexities of the backstop and taking the political context out of it. And I think if we can get over that and if we can get past that, then we can actually reach a deal. Now, the November summit, uh, I think, is being suggested for a Saturday and a, a Sunday mm. or an unusual day, but that is only if we have something to talk about. That is only if we have progress. So um, we still have time. We're still in the negotiations. Theresa May is still Prime Minister. She's still given a commitment that they will have a backstop. So that is what we are working towards. And as I've said, I understand, I suppose, what we're saying this uh, for a number of months now, but really we have to see something come forward. Otherwise, we are we are having a different conversation. Minister, many thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Now, concerns have uh, been raised about uh, the reading of ECG tests at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Navan. A cardiologist who was working uh, as a locum in the hospital said that he placed a disclaimer on 2,500 results as a result of per imaging from the machine, a cardio echogram machine as it's known and that consultant Dr Boban Thomas is on the line. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Uh, You're concerned that people may have been given the wrong results, is it? Good morning and uh, thank you very much. I did work in Our Lady's Hospital Navan and uh, the, um, the unit in question is an echocardiogram. I had first raised the issue with hospital management back in 2016, which was after the machine was basically declared obsolete uh, after the company that maintained it gave what's called an end-of-life certificate, saying that usually they do not have spare parts or any maintenance obligations after that. And um, when I saw that the imaging quality was extremely poor and clinical decisions could be erroneous based on that, I approached the general manager and I also informed the chief uh, engineering lead who was uh, much more uh, forthcoming in trying to resolve the problems. And um, we discussed this on the corridors once, but nothing ever came about it. And I subsequently placed a disclaimer informing the general manager. He, As you can see from mails that I have forwarded to various uh, journalists, that he was fully cognizant of this disclaimer. Subsequently, the Ireland East Hospital Group and the HSE said that I had instructed the technicians put a disclaimer on the echocardiograms without the knowledge or the approval of the hospital management. I have provided evidence to the contrary. And uh, the unit in question uh, had particularly poor images. I was the independent echocardiography core lab reader for an international clinical trial over the last six years where I read approximately 4,000 echo studies from all across the world. And the unit in Navin was absolutely atrocious in terms of the image quality. Subsequently, the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, issued a statement in May saying uh, that was um, to the point that there was really no need to rescan or think about the images. Uh, once, And there was no reason given as to why. It was that there was a meeting between the HSC staff and uh, the general manager and somebody else at Our Lady's Hospital in Avon. However, when I put in my complaint subsequently, they have come out with a procedural issue that uh, they actually commissioned uh, an analysis of 100 random studies from 2,213 exams Mm. that was read by a leading clinical cardiologist at the matter, 
uh, University Hospital. My question is, uh, why can they not provide the details about the exact date when this procedure was carried through? 2,200, when were they chosen? Uh, how were the 100 chosen in a random manner? Because you will understand that I was a consultant cardiologist on contract till the 29th of June 2018. None of this was ever discussed with me while I was still the consultant cardiologist there. And um, subsequently, uh, I have put my name out there. And I understand, I don't understand this rather very nebulous uh, way of dealing with things that the Ireland East Hospital Group and the HSE has. So I had informed the technicians, as you can see, I give various warnings in various emails, which are all now in the public domain, uh, regarding the poor capacity of the unit. The lead engineer of the Ireland East Hospital Group described the machine as obsolete. Now, even if the image quality can be considered reasonable for estimation of what the questions are for patients, I feel that it was completely unethical to use an obsolete piece of equipment over a period of 17 months to study patients. So this is my stand. Uh, do you have a, do you have any questions regarding what I've said, Mike? Well, I'm very interested in the type of problems that patients might have had that might have been missed. What are your concerns in relation to that? My concerns are that because of the poor image quality, there are various issues like ejection fraction, which is how well the heart pumps, the aortic stenosis, uh, which is the amount of blockage in one of the main valves, which is found in the elderly population. And we have various instances, and I had just picked out just one and given over there, various instances where we may not have been able to see things over there properly. And clearly, we may have missed it because it's just so. It is not possible for a person who looks at it and says that the image quality is good. Now, there is a way when you have a core lab for an international clinical study. We have a full format in terms of definition of how well are the borders of the heart seen? How well are the valves seen? How well can be measurements made? How um, can other uh, structures be identified? Now, where these procedures followed, look, we are talking about a country that is in the OECD. And am I right in, the in thinking Union. that you've seen for yourself problems with this machine. It's not just that you're concerned. Uh, you mentioned erotic stenosis there a moment ago. Is aortic, it right? Aortic stenosis. Yes. Aortic stenosis. Is it right to say that the machine uh, showed erotic stenosis in a, a patient? Aortic, aortic, A-O-R-T-I-C yes. stenosis. And, but that it, it was missed on a, a repeat study. It was missed. The, there was one study where it was first caught on Subsequently, it was missed on the next study. Then I had to ask for yet another study, which was through a CTCA, and we confirmed it. And then subsequently, when the new machine came, we we did the study yet again, and it confirmed the presence. So you can see the same machine for the same patient within a span of three months could give you completely discrepant results. Most worrying. Most worrying indeed. Dr. Thomas, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Dr. Bobin Thomas, uh, who worked as a locum consultant, a physician and a cardiologist in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan for four years. 
Now, as you've been hearing, Fine Gael will stand uh, two candidates in uh, the general election uh, for the constituency of Louth Meath East. Fergus O'Dowd, as you'd expect, and John McGahan will be the second candidate. It's a firefighting exercise, as uh, Peter Fitzpatrick has said, that he will not be standing for his party come the next election. John McGahan is with us. Do you hope, John McGahan, that your transfers will go to Fergus O'Dowd or to Peter Fitzpatrick. I hope uh, I hope their transfers go to me, Michael, to be perfectly honest. I'm absolutely in this fight to win it. Uh, I was delighted to be selected last night by Fine Gael members to contest the next general election and make no mistake about it, I'm going out to retain that second Fine Gael seat in County Louth. That's my intention. Well, there may not be a, a seat at all for Fine Gael, as we discussed with Fergus O'Dowd when Peter Fitzpatrick made it clear last time that he, he was going to stand as an independent. Uh, I suppose as things stand, uh, you've two Sinn Féin TDs. They'll return at least one. Fianna Fáil will undoubtedly return uh, a TD uh, and undoubtedly either Peter Fitzpatrick or Fergus O'Dowd will get a a seat. If you say it's Peter Fitzpatrick, then that leaves the fourth seat, which might go to Fine Gael. It might go to Sinn Féin. They might continue to uh, have two TDs or it might go to Labour for that matter. What I would say is, and to be perfectly fair, everything you said there in your last couple of sentences, it might go here, it might go there. And the reality, the reality of it is we simply don't know. Um, we're coming to the end of our confidence and supply agreement. We're looking to have it renegotiated for perhaps another year, is what Leo Vrykers has asked for. I really can't tell you how long or when an election is going to be. So to try and make a judgment on who's going to win or won't win seats at this point in time is difficult. But if Fine Gael are at 34% nationally in the polls, Louth is normally about 5 or 6% below the national trend, which would put us on about 26%. So if we're on 26% in County Louth on election day, that's two mm-hmm. seats there for Fine Gael if we manage our vote. Very good vote management. Got two candidates home the last time to the expense of Labour. It won't be the same type of management, or at least it'll be different candidates this time. Well, it'll be the same type of management for certain. Um, but yeah, you're quite right. There'll be two different candidates. That'll be myself and Fergus O'Dowd. So um, look, I've known Fergus. For and long, and I'm sure you'd accept that Peter Fitzpatrick is in the running and will make for a very strong candidate himself. Yeah, well, to go back to that, like when I the very when I started my speech last night to Fine Gael members, the very first thing I did was um, to thank Peter Fitzpatrick for all his work for Fine Gael. Um, he really was, and he has been an excellent TD, and he has been a great source of help. To has Fine Gael been good to Peter Fitzpatrick, or are there skeletons well, in the Fine Gael closet that Peter Fitzpatrick might expose? Well, I can only say that he's been very good to me as a county councillor over the last four years. Um, his office was always well run, and Grace in his office was fantastic to me. I saw with Jennifer Bray in the Times this morning that she was saying that he's going to discuss, and I saw an RT that he was going to discuss his options over the weekend and make a decision, um, having spoken to his family, whether he will contest the next election as an independent or not. I have absolutely no idea. Um, well, I think it's ma- more a matter of how he'll contest it uh, as a, a, an independent uh, or as part of a, a grouping, possibly an anti-abortion grouping. Yeah, well, that's look. That's an op- that's a decision for Peter. To be perfectly honest with you, I would really love him to stay in Fine Gael. He was elected as a Fine Gael TD. We need his vote uh, as as the government. It's a tight it's a tight minority in the minority government in the Dáil, as you know. We have very important budget negotiations mm. coming up, so we need all hands on deck. So I, his anti-abortion views will uh, be uh, received well by a, a lot of uh, the Fine Gael constituency, won't it? 
Well, it's hard to know. I think a large percentage of Fine Gael people actually voted to repeal the 8th referendum when you saw a lot of polls that came out after it. Um, I don't think, though, to be perfectly honest, that if an election comes around, whenever the time an election does come, I don't think people are going to vote for candidates based on what their stance was in the 8th referendum. I think they'll be looking at things about what the what their party are saying about the about their economic policies, mm, about their policies on well, housing, though. about <laughs> policies on health. I don't think many people... Now, I don't, I don't want to disparage it, but I think a small... I don't think the majority of people will vote for a candidate based on whether he took a pro-life or pro-choice view in the last referendum. Well, I, I don't know. I think general election general election candidates are scrutinised on every level. Uh, and this, of course, will be a, a very new game for you. You're a, a young politician. Uh, you've been a councillor and have good experience at that level. But uh, the type of scrutiny that candidates go under in a general election campaign is something that you may not be used to. Have you any skeletons in your closet? None whatsoever. So I'm really looking forward to this, Michael. Um, I spent my last four and a half years working incredibly hard as a councillor in Dundalk and North Louth. I, I got a resounding uh, vote last night from the Fine Gael members. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to throw the kitchen sink at it. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm running now and I'm going to try and retain our Fine Gael seat as best as I can. OK. And you accept, though, that everything that you do and have done will be scrutinised and looked at. And that is the nature of it. Uh, and uh, your record as a, a councillor will be looked at. How you voted uh, in the referendum will be looked at. Uh, people will be wanting to know, are you law abiding? Have you paid your taxes? Have you ever been in a fight? Going back to the referendum there, I was quite certain and I was quite clear that I took a very clear view that I was pro-choice. Uh, I didn't shy away from that decision. I said it last night actually in my speech to Fine Gael members that I'm uh, a type of politician, a bit like my uncle Brendan, I do not shy away from decisions. I take a stance, I go for it and people can judge me on that. Uh, and I think that's what the Irish people actually want. I think that's what the voters of the dark respect. Mm. They respect a politician who takes a stance and says that and, and allows them to make their decision. And, and I think people respect that when you, when you take a decision as opposed to maybe sitting on the fence or keeping your head below the parapet. And uh, uh, your Uncle Brendan, I think, was a law and order politician. Uh, I take it you pay your taxes and you've never been in a fight. Yeah, I pay taxes and everything else like that. So there's no issue like that. But, um, that never be, never been in a fight. But that was one thing that was said to me last night by so many people at Fine Gael. Um, when I got up and to speak, and I, I'd like to think that I gave quite a good speech, and so many people said to me, you reminded us so much of your Uncle Brendan. Um, you're like a young person. Oh, I, th- I thought they said you'd never been in a fight. No, no, no. no. Have you ever no, been in a I fight? I, I don't know what you're talking about, Mike. Oh, no, no, it's just I've uh, mentioned it I'm a few saying, times. I thought you addressed everything I'm, else. I'm, what I'm saying here is I was selected last night by Fine Gael members. I'm absolutely delighted at the resounding result that I got from Fine Gael. And whether Peter Fitzpatrick runs an independent or not, I have no idea. I can't comment on it. It is his decision. But I am going out now, hell for leather, to retain that seat for Fine Gael whenever the election comes. And I'm really, really looking forward to the challenge. So you've never been in a fight? <laughs> I don't know why you're asking me, no. So okay. that's what I'm doing, Michael, and I'm going hell for leather to do this. All right, listen, thank you indeed for joining us here uh, this morning. I'm sure we'll be hearing from Peter Fitzpatrick next week about his election fight. Uh, and thank you, as I say, that's uh, Fine Gael Councillor John McGahan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
The chairman of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, Sean Fleming, has said he isn't sure uh, and finds it hard to believe uh, that the Catholic Church will ever hand over the hundreds of millions of euro that they owe to the state to compensate victims of clerical child sexual abuse. This goes back to 2002 and an indemnity deal that the church struck with the government of the day and further payments promised in 2009 on foot of the Ryan report. The church has said it hopes that this matter will be resolved by Christmas. Uh, And as I say, there is some questions asked about that deadline by the Public Accounts Committee. We're joined by John Kelly, who's uh, the coordinator of uh, the Survivors of Child Abuse Group in Ireland, SOCA. John, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, Goes without saying at this stage uh, that uh, this is amazing. Well, it, it might sound amazing to your listeners, but not to me, Michael, because you will recall, I've been saying this for years and years on your show many, many years ago. I think your listeners need to understand this money comes in two parts. It was originally a deal, the deal that you referred to, that the indemnity deal in 2002, that they would pay $128 million. Now, so let's just deal with that section. They paid less than 5% of that. And then they were offering properties that was of no use to anyone. They'd, they'd probably have, uh, you know, it would be used if, uh, for playing fields, etc. There'd be a trust or something attached to it. But less than 5%. Now, that's 15 years on. So that's some delay. Mm. And bear in mind that these are supposed to be religious and compassionate people. Now, the next stage was, uh, I remember when we were invited by Minister Edithisha Khan and his cabinet, and they, because we demanded that they pay more, because what eventually transpired was that the bill that was estimated to cost 200 million cost 1.5 billion, and we felt that the taxpayer shouldn't have to pay all that amount of money. Yeah. And we we set on a campaign, and it was successful because when we met the teacher uh, Cowan and his cabinet, he explained to us that they were looking for a further 300 odd million. To bring it up to four hundred and eighty million and roughly mm. around that figure. So in that they're still short of two hundred and odd million. So in total they're nearly nearly three hundred million short of what it is. So why would we believe that they would have paid this by Christmas when they haven't paid this for fifteen years? And the state has committed to paying one billion of uh, this uh, total sum. In any event, and yes, and we thought, we, well, we demanded at the time, we said, why is it not 50% at least? Now, wow. I, 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 I accept the state had some responsibility because the state abdicated responsibility and just allowed these people to do what they liked. Well, the state trusted them to care well, for the children who were in their care. Well, I'm not too sure whether trust was the thing. I, I think they just simply abdicated their responsibility and they found a cheap way of looking after kids. So they didn't care what happened. They didn't care that. And it's always, always, this is always, I, I said this before in your show, to examine and how you look at the religious orders and the church, mm. you have to look at it in the, in, in, the, in the context of money. When the children were in institutions, such as the Magdalene, they made money out mm. of it. And they demanded that the, the, the in fact, the children's allowance fund for the children. Uh, and they were getting so much per capita per child. So it was a business. So they don't like losing money and they don't like paying money, but mm. they like receiving it. 
True. Well, and I, I, I suppose everybody knew to some extent uh, that uh, there was wrongdoing in these institutions and in these homes uh, and it, it was uh, an issue that was ignored by society in general. I mean, a lot of us grew up being told that if we didn't stop being bold, we'd be... Oh, my apologies. I'm not sure what happened there, but we appear to have lost the line with John Kelly. Uh, the conversation we're having is following on from a meeting of the Public Accounts Committee uh, and indeed correspondence uh, that was given to the committee from uh, department officials after meeting with uh, the representatives of the eight ch- 18 church congregations who have been involved in this ongoing controversy and indeed the Bill for Compensation since. 2002, when CORI, as uh, the umbrella for the 18 organisations was known at the time, struck a deal with the then Minister for Education, Michael Woods. Now, that was a a deal that was criticised greatly over a long period of time, uh, and indeed Michael Woods has defended the deal, and as to why he let the church off the hook, as many saw it at the time, uh, and suggested that it would have put the victims through the courts looking for compensation when it could have been dealt with in this way. Uh, John Kelly is back on the line. Uh, is my recollection of events correct there, John? Yes, exactly. That's how it was. Mm. Uh, and we, because we, 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 we said the, the deal, the indemnity deal at the time, you quite rightly said the state paid $1 billion. And, well, if, if they paid 1.5, the fact is that the remainder hasn't been paid by the, by the religious orders. Mm. But also, I remember at the time, I spoke to, to Minister Woods I said, why are you doing such a deal? And I remember Ocean Shortholds calling it a sweetheart deal, and that's exactly what it is. And just before we lost you there, I was going to talk about societal responsibility because I was going to say that a lot of us grew up being told that if we didn't stop being bold, we'd be sent to a home. And there was an implication in that because everybody knew that there was wrongdoing in these homes. You were sent to a home and you found out firsthand about the terrible abuse that occurred. Yes, indeed. And people always looked at it as well. And because you must remember, people inst- themselves were institutionalized. Forget about the, and, and I'm talking about you know, the thinking, the mindset, rather than the children, because they believed that these people were charitable people, that they were looking after their wafts and strays, something that the state wouldn't do. But the opposite was happening. The complete opposite was happening. And let's face it, how they were very really ill-equipped to look after children were in a family setting, because there was no females in, in any one particular institution together with mm-hmm. a, a family setting. There was nothing like that. So they were certainly ill-equipped, but they did try everything to get out of pain. I mean, they hired one of, I, I think it was either Cox, some of the best solicitors. Mm-hmm. This gives you an idea how it is. And they're still considering a charity, by the way. This is not compensation as far as they're concerned. And because they consider it charitable, there's nothing the state can do about this. Okay, well, 16 years on from the original sweetheart deal, here we are. Uh, the terms have been improved or disimproved, if you like, from uh, the religious perspective, uh, but money is still owing. We're hearing that uh, this will be resolved by Christmas. Have you any confidence that that will be the case? No, I don't. And I don't. And, and, and you have to bear in mind, from the original deal, which I mentioned earlier, in 2002, $128 million, the only reason they offered more was because the public outcry at the cost. And it, it wasn't the taxpayer that committed the abuse, it was the religious orders and the church. Um, but, as I said, now, I don't, the only way you can 
force these people to pay is to say, because it was, uh, they considered this voluntary uh, contribution to voluntary charity. Well, if that's the case, take away their voluntary license for charity. And that would get them moving. Okay. We have to put pressure. Okay, John, I have to leave it there. I'm afraid I'm out of time. Apologies for the difficulties we had on the telephone. And thank you indeed for joining us, as always. John Kelly, coordinator of SOCA, that's uh, the Survivors of Child Abuse in Ireland group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Nothing like a bit of politics to excite everybody. And lots coming in in relation to what's happening in Fine Gael, in Louth. And also, I suppose, with people looking ahead to the general election and what might what the outcome might be. Tom from Dundalk was in touch. And Tom says, despite all the hopes... Um, of people that there may be some resolve in relation to getting Peter Fitzpatrick back on board. I think there was a bit of speculation, Michael, coming up to the convention that he may throw his hat in the ring. And Tom says that he was disappointed that this did not happen. Uh, Another listener says that Peter Fitzpatrick feels is still sore over not getting a a Minister for Sports portfolio and he thinks that he would be very foolish to run as an independent. Chris phoned in from Fianna Fáil in Drogheda and he says, uh, Michael, that you mentioned the possibility of Fine Gael getting two seats or Sinn Féin getting two Mm. seats. But what about Fianna Fáil? He thinks that Fianna Fáil have a very good chance Mm. of winning two seats, that we'll be running Anthony Moore, he says, this side of the county. And I think that we could have a very good chance and we will win a seat. One one, uh, one seat in the north of the county and another one this end of the county, okay. predicts Chris. Yep. Uh, another listener says, I admire Peter Fitzpatrick because he stood up to the government in relation to his stance on abortion. He didn't turn his back on his own views and beliefs. And I think there'll be plenty of support for him from anti-abortion people if he does stand. Okay. Well, I'm sure Peter thinks that too. And I'm sure he's listening to us uh, this morning and very interested in some of uh, the conversations uh, that he's listening to for that matter. Sean phoned in and Sean says that he'd like to congratulate John McGahan that he's a young politician and has proven himself to be a very able councillor and has been working very hard for the people of Dundalk and thinks that he is a good choice to run for the party. Okay. Uh, we also had Declan in touch who says that Peter Fitzpatrick uh, could split the Fine Gael vote in the county and he's sure that that's what the other parties will be hoping that if Peter does run and he say, he thinks it could leave the way open for Labour to snatch the seat or maybe Fianna Fáil to take two. So all right, it's all well, to play for yeah, still. Uh, it's pretty unpredictable as uh, we speak. Let's talk uh, some facts now and how there's uh, 11,133 homeless people in the country. Sorry, that's wrong. Uh, it's actually 9,527 people who are homeless in the country and this is because 1,606 of the first figure I mentioned have been recategorized. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there's 4,674 children who are homeless in the country. Sorry, that's wrong. It's actually 3,693 children who are homeless in the country. That's because 981 children who would have previously been 
defined as being homeless are now classified uh, in a, a different way. This is of concern to homeless groups and indeed uh, children's representatives across uh, the country. And uh, June Tinsley, Head of Advocacy with Bernardo's, joins us now. Good morning and thanks for joining us. There's a, a lot of children homeless, that's the first thing to say. But are, are you concerned uh, about how these figures are changing? Um, morning, Michael. Well, as you right, rightly described there in the beginning, it leads to absolute confusion. Um, and as a result, what the actual number is can come across as being totally meaningless and people um, are glaze over at the thought of it. But in reality, behind each of those individual numbers is an individual child and family who is experiencing homelessness. And while the debate might rumble on around what is more accurate figures, I think the reality is we can't shy away from the fact that we are talking about each individual individual and family who's experiencing homelessness. And in Ireland, it is such of epidemic proportions um, that each day that passes, um, we, we can't dilute the significance of this crisis. OK, but if we're playing with the figures, and I'm not saying that that's what we are doing, but if we were to be playing with the figures, it would seem uh, as though we're playing politics with the children and out of touch with the plight that they find themselves in. Yes, that certainly seems to be the case, because it's, it's deflecting the conversation away from um, what remedies need to be taken to prevent the stem of homelessness, what remedies need to be taken to ensure families exit out of homelessness as quick as possible and instead the conversation is shifting towards well, what are the accurate figures um, and I just think it, it dilutes the significance and public appetite towards trying to, to remedy this crisis which, as I said, with every passing day has a, a long-term negative effect on children who are growing up in inappropriate hotels, B&Bs and family hubs. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure what to say about it. It it is the most bizarre thing uh, that you could do with... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Such a, a crisis, a, 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 and it seems to ignore the crisis and look to securing uh, the political future of individuals. Um, yeah, it, it certainly seems to be becoming more of a, a political number crunching game rather than focusing on the core issues. Um, and it, I'm still trying to unpick the, what this recategorization means and have these families genuinely moved into more sustainable, appropriate accommodation. 
um, my reading so far is that that isn't the case. But if that's not the case, then why are they not still classified as homeless and being in need of appropriate accommodation? Their accommodation Uh, is paid for out of the homeless budget, isn't it? It sounds as if these families that have been removed from the official categorisation have now been moved into apartments or houses but don't have leases on those apartments or houses and, yes, are, are paid for by the um, uh, by the local authorities. Mm. And because they were paid for by the local authorities out of the homeless budget, uh, they would have been considered homeless before and now they're not. Correct. So why do we have this recategorisation? The, the ultimate re, um, reality is for these families, they don't have security of a long-term appropriate accommodation if they're living in... Um, buildings and apartments or houses that have been provided for them but don't have any lease. So how secure is that tenancy? And for a child, that confusion can be really, really significant. They don't genuinely don't know how long they're going to be living in that uh, accommodation. Does that mean they need to change schools at a later point in time? Does it mean that they have to... Um, settle or are they going to be continuously moving on? Um, it's, it's just so overwhelming that it's just not an, an appropriate child-centred response at all. Okay, we'll leave it on that. No, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. June Tinsley is Head of Advocacy with Barnardo's Ireland. Marie, what else have you got for us? Just going back to the general election and what's going on in Fine Gael at the moment. Jerry from Dundalk contacted us and he says, is Peter Fitzpatrick still a member of Fine Gael? And he says he is standing as an independent. Well, he hasn't really said that yet, but this is what Jerry's asking in the next election. But I haven't seen anything in the papers about it. Has he still got the party whip? Jerry wants to know. And Patrick, on the same topic, wonders where does this leave Peter Fitzpatrick, who's a sitting Finnegale TD in the Dáil? Where does it leave him now? if he is going to run as an independent. Okay. So lots of questions there. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, we can uh, speculate on the answers to a lot of them uh, and we can answer some of them uh, for that matter. Peter Fitzpatrick is a member of Fine Gael and he will continue to be a member of Fine Gael until he or his party wishes otherwise. Uh, he has said that he will not stand in the next general election for Fine Gael. The speculation then is that he will stand as an independent. Uh, it was expected that after Fine Gael chose its candidates for the next election, which they did last night, that Peter Fitzpatrick would resign his position from Fine Gael. It's expected now that he will do that next week, and that will mean that he will be an independent in the Dáil without the Fine Gael whip until the Dáil dissolves, and at that stage then, the speculation is that he will stand as an independent or as part of a grouping or a party that is anti-abortion. And she also did say, Michael, that when the convention was over, that he would talk to us. So hopefully he will come on the show next week. And oh, well, I'm sure he will. I'm sure he'll be looking for votes <laughs> apart from anything else as an independent. <laughs> so and I'd be very surprised if he didn't. Yeah. Uh, just finally yeah. mm. to David on Brexit. Uh, David just says that despite all the pledges from politicians and all the talk, that it would work out. We are no closer to having a Brexit deal and the implications 
David feels are just too awful to think about. We cannot go back to the days of the hard border and David says he's getting very worried. All I right. think he's not the only one. Okay. Well, there's a, a, a lot of things that are uncertain. Very little that is cer- certain. Many questions, few answers and uh, a lot of concern for that matter. David, thank you indeed for your call and thanks to everybody who's been in touch. Thanks for that matter, Marie, for bringing us uh, those thoughts from the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. In the meanwhile, if you'd like to make comment on our programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. As you know, on the 26th of October, you'll be asked to vote for the next president of Ireland. You'll have six candidates to choose from and one of them is Senator Joan Freeman who's an independent candidate and joins us here this morning in our makeshift temporary studio which I apologise to you for bringing you into this morning. Uh, Hopefully we'll have a a better studio if you come back to us uh, in time to come. And before we start our our interview this morning uh, maybe you'd like to make a a brief statement uh, of 90 seconds or less for our listeners. Okay, Uh, so um, first of all, my name is Joan Freeman. Um, I want to be a president that uses the office to influence um, the people in how to build up and strengthen the heart and the compassion of the people for for the people of this country. Um, And, you know, to be honest, Michael, I, I look at this as a job, as a job application. And I'm applying to the people of this country. And the reality is, you know, when you apply for a job, you have to look at three basic things. The first one is, does your track record prove that you have served the people of this country before? The second basic question is, do you have the qualities, you know, such as for the role, such as resilience, determination, grit, and also energy? And the third thing is, would Ireland be proud of you? to represent them nationally and internationally. And I suppose I look back Mm. at my past and especially as my work as the founder of Pieta House and the founder of Darkness Into Light. And I think I would be a really good president. Do you think it would be unfair to suggest that if you were to answer yes to all those questions, that you must think you're great? (laughs) But no, I mean, if you think, if you were I mean, applying, you, you, you effectively right. nom- you effectively nominated yourself. I know you have the nomination of four county councils, yeah. but nobody put your name forward. You decided that this is a position that you would like to have yourself, that you believe you are the right person to represent Ireland and yes. to represent what it means to be Irish. Yeah. Do you know what? The word great, thank you for saying that, first of all. But what I'm talking about is when you go for a job, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe what you can do. And I truly believe that my past has shown that not only have I served the people of Ireland all my adult life, but I'm so willing to put my head above the parapet. I'm so willing to actually give up my life for the next seven years to serve the people at at probably the most important level. And I really do want to build up the compassion and heart of our society, because mm. you've got to remember, the last seven years, we have focused on about building the economy. We've struggled to survive. What we now t- need to do is turn the lens back on the people. We've seen such an increase on homelessness and addiction and waiting lists. Let's look at the people. Let's start focusing on them. And we will be a better together Ireland if we do that. But I, I was suggesting that you know 
how to represent Ireland and what it means to be Irish. Do you know what it means to be a child in Ireland, growing up in Ireland, because you spent your childhood in England? I certainly do know what it is to be a child in Ireland. I'm dealing with children all the time. I'm fighting for the children of Ireland every single day. I've just recently brought through the the Shannad a piece of legislation that will stop children being placed into adult psychiatric wards. You also have to remember the child. I when I was a child, Ireland was a very different country. This is about the child today and the child in the future. I am the expert on that. In what sense? Well, I, first of all, I know exactly all the issues that affect children nowadays, not only just, you know, if, they ha- if there's any mental health issues. Let me give you an example. Um, I have a granddaughter who's four and a half. Mm. She started school uh, two weeks ago and there's 30 in her class. Out of that class of 30, seven of those children will develop some really serious mental health issue. So I know about the children. We also are facing, our children are facing cyberbullying, poor self-esteem. I know one child of 14 who spent two hours focusing her camera for a selfie to get the most perfect image so that she could post it. These are the issues. Then we have also childhood obesity. I remember speaking there only a few weeks ago to one of the clinicians who runs an obesity, child, child obesity clinic every week. And she said, they are the saddest children in Ireland. So I have very, Mm. very much a very clear picture of what our children are like. But I also know that our children are resilient if they are encouraged to be resilient. What what is positive about the Irish children that is different to uh, the children uh, of your era? That's what I was just saying, that our children are resilient if they're allowed to be Mm. resilient, if they're encouraged to be resilient. We faced nothing. I faced, didn't face anything like the children are facing nowadays. But we also need not just focus on the children, but the parents who are dealing with the issues for their children. And we must applaud the parents. They are facing issues that I didn't have to face as a a parent. I have four children. They're almost older than me Mm. now at this point. But... I didn't have the issues. We didn't have mobile phones. They didn't have mm. until they were in their mid to late teens. And did they watch pornography? Do my children? Yeah. Well, now they're in their 30s at this point. No, no when, when they were children, did but they sure, watch How porn? could they? There mm. were no mobile mm. phones. There was mm. no, and certainly wouldn't be mm. on the television. But do you accept that that's what's happening now? That that's the society that we're growing exactly, up? Exactly. That is exactly. That's what I'm saying. Mm. These are the issues that are facing children nowadays, facing the parents. Mm. You know, the, the parents have to be so alert, you know, where if the children weren't playing outside, mm. they were playing inside in, in, in my day. You know. But you're a deeply religious person. Uh, and for young people, uh, I think uh, they would look at, at you as a, a figure from a, a different era uh, who, who doesn't understand what's on their phone uh, and, you know, all that stuff about God. Well, first of all, uh, I would I would challenge the word religious. I'm a, sp- a spiritual person. I have a great faith. I, I have a great relationship with God. That doesn't mean to say religious. Um, there's, you know, there's there's 80 percent of the people of Ireland have some sort of faith, have some sort of relationship with God. That's not a crime, by the way. You know, that is, by the way, one of the things um, that keeps coming up over and over again is that research would tell you. If you do have some sort of faith, however small or however large, it's one of the most the most incredible things to help with your resilience. Mm. And now you've but just you've just lost 
I would imagine, 80% of the young people in this country. No, no. I only have to mention Pieta House and Darkness into Light mm. when they know, they instantly know that, um, that I come from a good place, Michael. And I also have this incredible belief in young people that they're not judgmental. And they also believe that everybody has a voice and that there are lots of voices in Ireland and that we will never go back to what it was like 50 years ago when no one did have, no no one was allowed to speak about their, you know, whatever their belief was. That's why I have incredible faith in, okay. in, in uh, our And young you're people. used to working with volunteering and you're hoping to put that... Uh, into the national psyche. Volunteering is already there. I think what we need to do about volunteers is to acknowledge, first of all, that this country would be on its knees without the volunteers. I was in Waterford there a couple of weeks ago at nine o'clock in the morning and meeting the people who um, who look after the, the river, you know, the, the, the river watch, you know, the search and rescue. Mm. They're all volunteers. You know, they're all volunteers. And I was there, I was in Blessington last week talking to a woman who looks after, who runs a, a voluntary, again, a voluntary centre for people who have dementia. Mm. These are volunteers. Where would we be without Vincent de Paul? Where would we be without Bernardo's? Most of these are run by our volunteers and they need to be acknowledged. Right, uh, but uh, you're talking about a, a, a national uh, assembly. Uh, tell us uh, what that would entail. So, no, not a National Assembly. I honestly believe that every county, first of all, has issues, has problems. Every county, you know, whether it's homelessness or whether it's addiction. And every county is different. But I also believe that every county that has problems also contains its own solutions. And what I would think really, really is so important, I've done this with Darkness Into Light and I've done it with Pieta House, is that we have we empower each county to look at those issues, to have a committee, a task force who will not only be filled with people who can advise about homelessness or addiction or whatever mm. in that county, but it's also made up of business people, influencers who will come together and because of the love of their community will not only identify the problems, but come up with the solutions as well. Mm. These are ideas uh that are, are reminiscent of David Cameron's Big Society, aren't they? Really? I didn't know that, to be honest. I didn't know that. I'm very, very impressed that we mm. think alike. Well, that turned out to be an abysmal failure. Well, you see, we're a smaller country. There's only four and a half million. We can do so much. We've already proved that we can do so much. And when we come together, we are surely better together. Mm. Uh, you know, the uh, where do you see yourself in five years from now question. If you were to be the next president, uh, Joan Freeman, where would you see yourself in seven or eight years from now? So seven years from now, I would be embracing and applauding Ireland for what it has achieved from a compassionate point of view. Uh, that we would have addressed the issues, the social issues. I'd be looking back at all the counties and applauding each county for having the courage to tackle those issues. I would then be retiring after the seven years uh, as president. A one-term president. A one-term well, president. We've heard that before, haven't we? I know, mm. I know. And, mm. you know, that's all right. Mm. I, that, that's, that's his prerogative, Michael D's prerogative. But I would really intrude. I, I mean, look, when I was seven years in Pieta House as the founder, I actually uh, gave my board, the board of directors, <clears throat> my notice. 
and gave them, uh, in fact, it turned into be a two year <laughs> resignation. Mm. Because I really believe after seven years, you cannot give any more freshness. And I really believe you, 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 someone else is better to take over at that point. And that, that's my own personal belief, I have to tell you. Mm. So at this point, um, if I was to be president and if, you know, I was fortunate to be elected, I would stick to my promise that this is one term because truly you would need somebody else after that because Ireland again will be different in seven years time. You need a person of the time that will reflect the time and reflect the Ireland we're in. And that's if you become president. What if you don't become president in seven years from now and your campaign uh, isn't successful enough to see you have your expenses returned uh, in seven years from now? Do you hope to have repaid the money that has been donated to your campaign? Well, uh, it's not donated. I received a loan. Um, and it's funny, I was I was sort of half giving out yesterday. Um, I, I, I'm probably the last true independent um, in this campaign. And I really hope it doesn't turn into a Trump's America where the only candidates that can be put forward are people who are aligned with a party or who have a lot of money. I mean, yesterday um, there were buses arriving, big buses, mm. you know, for, with the candidates in them. I r- arrived in a small rented car um, and that's fine. Mm. I, but I, I think I really and truly reflect the Ireland, the, the, what Ireland is like and the people of Ireland. So in seven years time, getting back to your question, I'll be repaying the loan that I have received because I don't have the money. I had to borrow. No bank would give me a loan um, because they're saying, what, a loan for a campaign? Um, and, you know, it's 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 going to cost money. Um, I won't have anything like the money that the other candidates have. All I have is this honest and true um, sort of belief that I really and truly can make changes in Ireland. I've proved it before. Listen, in May of this year, 200,000 people walked across our country at four o'clock in the morning. You know, as as some man said to me recently, he said there are only three women in his life who will get him up at that hour of the morning. One is his wife, one is his one-year-old daughter, and the third person is me. Uh, that will get him up at that hour of the morning. So I, I really honestly believe that I can inspire change. And I know that with the look at what, what this Ireland, uh, Ireland has become. We've become a country where when we get together, we in, absolutely uh, um, cause enormous change. Um, so I, I, I really think that that if I am uh, elected as president, I will be true to what I've done in the past and what I hope to achieve in the future. Well, we wish you every success with your campaign, as we do all the candidates. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for coming into us this morning. Thanks so much, Michael. That's independent candidate, Senator Joan Freeman. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time on a Friday, for our review of the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin our roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. 
The alcohol bill is currently making its way through the Oireachtas and will see a cancer warning printed on bottles and can labels. Finnegale TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, told the House that applying such labels highlighting risks to cancer will actually do damage to small breweries and distilleries. The impact it will have, especially on small breweries and distilleries, and you know, it, 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 as I said earlier on, we have to combat the abuse of alcohol. Imposing the cancer warning on Irish products will harm the reputation of Irish producers. Will, harm, will, will also harm Ireland's reputation as a nation known for producing high-quality food and drinks. And it will denigrate Irish products on the global market. Minister, no other country in the world has done this. Speaking during the same debate, Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock said displaying cancer warning on bottles and cans would have serious implications for breweries and distillers in County Louth. Imposing cancer warning on alcohol product does affect the people in my constituency. Indeed, one microbrewery that I'll name, Le Stolk, is employing 14 people. And that's one of ten that has been established, as I've said earlier, in the last ten years. The reputational damage that putting this labelling on will cause a problem for the drinks industry in this country. And for anybody to doubt that it won't, I've said it and I say it publicly, you put one product that that has no label on it in our airports and the same product on the shelf in Ireland has a label on it. Anybody with common sense would, who was in opposition or wanted to promote their product would display those two items and say what in the name of God are the Irish people trying to do? They're telling those abroad that it's not carcinogenic and they're telling their own people it is and I have a difficulty with that. Family income support payments in County Meath was raised by Fine Gael Senator Ray Butler on Tuesday last. Speaking at the Oireachtas Committee on Employment and Social Affairs, he told Social Protection Minister Regina Doherty that families in Meath are being taken advantage of. Minister, Meath County Council are reviewing all their uh, tenants' uh, rents in social housing. And I would just like to ask the question, why is family income supplement support taken as a gross income and putting up rents when this money is given through social protection to support families, not for rent? Uh, No other body brings family income uh, support into a person's uh, gross income. I think that it's scandalous that local authorities are allowed to do this. Because your department has given out this money in good faith to lower uh, income families and it's been used then to give uh, rent to local authorities. And I know of people that have their rent has gone way up because they're using family income supplement as uh, gross income. In response, Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD for Me, the East, Regina Doherty, said the issue was relevant and she would look into the matter. There's inconsistencies with regard to work and family payments. So first of all, at the end of the day, um, it is an income. The reason we give it to people who are on low incomes or only work 19 hours for the, um, every fortnight is because they couldn't survive on the money that they're actually earning. And so the work and family payments supplements uh, on the basis of the hours that they work and the number of children that they have. So therefore, it is income coming into the household. Um, and so Mead County Council obviously have a right to allocate it as income when they're working at the deferential rate. What's where the inconsistency lies is, is that that isn't the same in every county council across the country, and I think it would be fair um, and consistent if it was applied uh, with equal measure, either way or the other. And I will certainly make inquiries as to that.
Assistants working in pharmacies could find themselves out of a job due to changes in the law. Labour Senator Jed Nash called on the government to address the problem when he spoke in the Senate on Tuesday. I understand that new rules um, have been developed um, by the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland that uh, if they are adopted through statutory instrument um, under, I believe, the 2007 Act, uh, could restrict, very seriously restrict, the role and the function and responsibilities of pharmacy assistants up and down the country. Now, my understanding is that there are about 355 uh, pharmacy assistants, uh, all of whom have particular kinds of qualifications that are recognised, uh, but those particular courses, in fact, stopped quite a number of years ago. The bulk of pharmacy assistants are women. They're women over 55, and could find, if these proposals manage to migrate into a statutory instrument, which they're likely to over the next short period of time, they could find themselves out of work uh, with pharmacies across this country under severe pressure. So my call today is for the Minister for Health, who, is my understanding, would be obligated to sign a statutory instrument to review this situation. A Labour Party private member's bill calling for the re-establishment of town councils was discussed in the Dáil during the week. Speaking in the House on Tuesday, Sinn Féin TD Amelda Munster accused the Labour Party of disowning towns like Drogheda. Your Labour Minister Alan Kelly, when he was Minister for Local Government, said in a parliamentary response, now wait for it, that he was satisfied that Drogheda had a status, a status appropriate to its size and its location within Louth County Council, and he had no proposals to introduce amending legislation to establish a new city authority in Drogheda or elsewhere. But now his colleague, a former Labour super junior minister who was in Cabinet at the time and from Drogheda, said diddly squat, said absolutely nothing, put up no fight for the town, and in fact he actively, actively removed Drogheda's borough council. And Labour were warned of these consequences. They were warned time and time again and the, about the consequences of removing any sort of local democracy and power from borough councils and town councils, councils and setting up toothless municipal councils. And we in Drogheda and Dundalk have to put up with your mess, have to deal with the mess that you created day in, day out since then. And Loud is the two largest towns in the state. And neither have a council that is worth anything. Loud County Council treat Drogheda as an afterthought. Speaking on the same issue, Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Meath West, Damien English, said the current municipal district system is working fine and he is not aware of any public demand to re-establish town councils. Take my own county. In places like Ashburn, Dunboy and Enfield didn't have town councils. The only three we had was in Navin, Kells and Trim. And it wasn't exactly a very fair system. And even those boundaries had to be changed and the process changed and it took a long time in some cases as well. So it wasn't perfect either. Uh, and it, it was worth bearing that in mind that I do think that the changes in this area makes it much more effective. Also, just finishing, there's been some benefits in relation to effectiveness and decision making. I have to say I often felt that when you had the twin approach, the, the council... Uh, the local authority, sorry, the council area and the town council, you had, you did, you so had decisions that. delayed. And decisions delayed are often bad decisions. And I, I, I have to say, if you're ever going back to town council, bear that in mind, because you're handing over Deputy. opportunity there for, for nothing to happen in some cases. That view, though, was not shared by Fianna Fáil TD for me, the West Shane Castles, who accused Labour leader Brendan Howland of making a major error in abolishing town councils in the first place. I read the email that Deputy Howland sent around last week with the mea culpa story about what they had done 
but it was a bit like the fox going into the hen house and having savaged all the chickens is was on a way out when he meets the farmer with the shotgun at his head going mea culpa so be you Deputy Howland here you are today fantastic Mr Fox with the feathers coming out of your mouth as you beg forgiveness for culling so many effective councils that represented the beating heart of our urban towns last can I served on Navin Town Council and was honoured to have been Mayor of my town on two occasions and we achieved a hell of a lot. Another town I know very well is Drogheda, located close to us, where they proudly held borough council status and they have felt the brunt of this decision very badly. A town, actually, with a very proud Labour uh, tradition where I attended many NUJ meetings in the local, in, in the local union hall. This morning, the local paper in that town, the Drogheda Independent, has a front page story stating on this very issue, time to get the power back. They have felt the loss of those decisions. And finally, the Dáil was told on Tuesday that time is running out for the UK government to come up with an acceptable proposal as part of its exit plan from the European Union. Minister of State and Fine Gael today for me, the East, Helen McEntee, told the House that the October EU summit is likely to be the last chance for the British to strike a deal. To date, the UK have not agreed with our proposed um, legal wording of the backstop. They have not agreed with Michel Barnier's approach, and so they must bring forward their solutions. And what we saw last week, I believe, in Salzburg, uh, was not hardening again of Irish positions or EU positions. It was merely a restating the position that we have always had. We must have a legally binding and operate an operable backstop uh, in place in the withdrawal agreement for us to move forward. And that contribution by Minister of State for European Affairs and Fine Gael TD for me, the East, Helen McEntee, concludes our Loud Me, the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray should have another Loud Me, the Oireachtas report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. 34% of businesses say they've been the victim of crime in the last 12 months, with 66% of businesses experiencing more than two incidents. This is according to a survey that the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association carried out with its members. Its chief executive is Neil MacDonald, and he's on the line. Neil, I I take it this just gives uh, some insight into the extent of the problem for a a number of reasons. One, you had a relatively small response to your survey, but the other problem that you're facing, I I think, is that this incorporates a number of crimes, theft, robbery, fraud, and perhaps more, and you want a a single definition of what is business crime. Uh, Yes, we do. We do, Michael, and good morning to you and your listeners. Um, I I will say at the outset, uh, because I I, I know that media get fascinated with with, uh, this sort of reporting, but the the figures reported are actually a slight improvement on last year. So the 34% of businesses affected is actually down 1% on last year. And although two-thirds, as you say, of businesses report two or more crimes, that figure is actually down 9% on last year. So there there are improvements. I suppose for, for LMFM listeners, the, the more concerning statistic is that Leinster, excluding Dublin, is is the highest reporting at, at 43% uh, of businesses reporting a crime. But yes, 
um, the the CSO uh, reported figures actually don't they they give shall we say ordinary criminality statistics but they don't break out business crime which is a, a, an entire area of, of criminal activity on its own including cyber crime uh, so we would like to see that specifically reported upon uh, and to be defined as crime against business uh, and uh, to see that dealt with uh, through the judicial system uh, as a crime in its own right well no not no we're not suggesting that it would be dealt with by through, through the legal system in a different way but we are suggesting it should be reported uh, statistically as its own crime because uh, uh, for instance um, a, a lot of people don't report a crime against their business which they might otherwise do if it was against themselves personally or against their household uh, and the sorts of things that influence them in this regard are uh, for instance 18% of businesses say they didn't report a crime because they were afraid of the impact on their insurance costs Mm. Uh, and 14% of businesses that did report a crime uh, also reported an increase in their legal costs in handling it. So, And that's, that, that's the consequence, let's say, of theft on a, a business rather than theft on a, an individual. Uh, exactly. Uh, and, exactly. Uh, and I, I thought that uh, you had wanted uh, the judicial system to look on it uh, in that uh, way, uh, in the difference between the two, because uh, you've 11 recommendations and you've asked yes, that the sentences yes, be reassessed uh, in terms of business crime. Yeah, yes, we do. I, I suppose it's, it's just a nuance of a difference. I think fr- yeah. from the membership's view on the judiciary, the standout number, and it's you know the nearest thing you'll get to unanimity in these things, Michael, is 87% of our members think that the judicial system is ineffective in handling uh, in handling business crime. So, if, if I put it this way, there there is a sense that in in sentencing, judges in some way take a more lenient view of a crime against business or business property than they would against the same crime been mm. committed against a person or a domestic dwelling. And, and of course, while we're not saying that something against the, the person or, or the home is anything other than traumatic, what we are saying is it's equally traumatic if something was to, you know, to, if you think of yourself on the day mm. job there in the radio station, if, if there was to be a crime uh, uh, committed there, the, it wouldn't be any less traumatic for you simply on the basis that uh, it, it happened at work. Um, so, yeah, Yes, we have uh, 11 recommendations. I'm not going to go into all of them, but uh, the most important one is that we actually do have a definition of business crime uh, that is uh, um, separately reported upon by Angarda Siakana. And we also do believe that we should have a a business crime bureau or or centre, as they do in the UK, to Mm. specifically tackle these things. And when you talk about business crime, you're talking about relatively serious crime. I, I mean, you're not necessarily talking about school children taking a chocolate bar from the local news agents because the crimes that have been reported to you are costing businesses anywhere from a, a thousand euro upwards and quite often in excess of ten thousand euro. Now, yes. I, I take it they don't just take the hit and that in effect somebody else ends up paying for that, the rest of us, in other words. 
Yeah, at, at some point, you know, that those costs in insurance and security do have to be passed on to the customer and the consumer because if they're not, the business can't afford to continue to trade. So, yes, uh, this ultimately does impact everyone. Um, and, of course, it's not just the cost uh, of the loss incurred as a result of crime, it's a cost of the of the crime prevention measures and other ancillary costs that mm. are incurred. So, putting an alarm, CCTV, uh, perhaps CCTV, security cards, static monitoring, mm. all of that stuff costs. Uh, you know, adds very significantly to the bottom line, and ultimately, you and I are asked to pay for that when we go into a shop or a filling station. In the same way that you've got to pay for the heat in the shop or the filling station or the lights, uh, because uh, you can't make a, a profit if you don't cover your expenses. Exactly, it's a cost of doing business, and if you if you can't meet that cost, you you cease to trade. And, of course, then there's uh, the impact on insurance. As I think you mentioned, 18% of businesses aren't even bothering to report these crimes because it'll cost them more, I take it. Yes, and this is, I I suppose... People will be familiar with this when they, you know when they have minor you know minor car accidents or things like that. You know there is a call. There's almost a judgment call to be made. If I report this, is is the impact of this on my no claims bonus? Is it actually greater? Uh, um, than what I'm going to recover in the claim. Uh, that's exactly the consideration that applies to business. You know if you're mm. dealing with you know, a claim less than a thousand euro, uh, do you just review that? Do you just take a view that that should be a hit on the bottom line? Or do you report it to your insurer and attempt to recover it in the knowledge uh, uh, that your uh, your premium for the following year is, is potentially going to rise and remain higher for the next number of years? So, so insurance uh, and legal costs are really, really significant impact on business uh, not merely from a cost point of view, but on how they manage these threats. Okay, and obviously there's shrewd operators out there who know you have insurance that they might be able to make a claim on if uh, there's an accident of some sort. And uh, an awful lot of people are reporting exaggerated claims to you. Yes, that that fifteen uh, percent, almost one in six of businesses are reporting false or exaggerated claims. Obviously, Michael, you're 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 into a far bigger policy area, and we're we're very keenly watching developments following the the publication by Mr. Justice Cairns of his of his personal injury award benchmarking report last week. Um, that is the sort of temptation you, know, you you have to ask yourself philosophically why why anyone would bother attempting to rob money from somewhere else when they can go into a store uh, slip and they will have the greatest of assistance from a solicitor in formulating a claim which mm. might have no merit but which will get them almost certainly somewhere between 10 and 20,000 euro. God, I hope you haven't inspired anybody. It's bad enough as it is. <laughs> we leave it there. <laughs> and uh, thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us Michael. this morning. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of ISME, brings our programme to its conclusion today and indeed for this week. Our time has run out on us. Remember there'll be a podcast available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marie in the Control Tower. I hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.